welcome to the Come Follow Me Weekly Wisdom Podcast. My goal is to deepen your faith in and love for Jesus Christ and his gospel. You can best support these podcasts by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature and His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you. This will be a quick summary of the introductory pages of the Book of Mormon. There's only a few pages, so I anticipate that this will be a bit shorter than some of the previous ones. If you haven't caught the previous podcast, go and do that. There's some good comments there on the idea of uh, the Book of Mormon being the most correct of any book on the earth, and there's some good comments there that might be helpful for you. So with the Book of Mormon, the first page that you're going to come into contact with is the statement, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon is a testament of Jesus Christ. That's one of its primary roles. When you turn the page, you'll have this statement that gives a little bit more of a summary of some of the critical points of the Book of Mormon. And in that paragraph, it states, that the Book of Mormon exists so that we would know what great things God has done to, their, to our, for our fathers, as well as to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. The Book of Mormon is a testament of Jesus Christ. That is one of its primary roles, and so that subtitle is quite justified. I've seen good lessons taught when people just take the Book of Mormon and ask, The Book of Mormon is a witness of Christ. From the pages of the Book of Mormon, what testimonies of Jesus Christ have resounded to you? The Book of Mormon effectively testifies of Jesus Christ, and then you can get individuals sharing the ones that have been very meaningful to them, and it's and, and what that will do is everyone in that room that's in there sharing these verses from the Book of Mormon are convincing one another of the testament that the Book of Mormon is of the Savior Jesus Christ. So this second page that you'll run into, I was trying to do some research to figure out where it came from. I wasn't sure if it was um, a statement that um, a prophet or someone else had put in the Book of Mormon, or if it was written by Mormon himself. It seems as though that I think as far as I was able to get is it seems like that par- these two paragraphs that you run into were written by Mormon or Moroni. The first paragraph is more informative, telling about some of the history and things there. There's not as many deep principles. Whereas that second paragraph, which we already referenced, it has this very significant statement. It states that the Book of Mormon is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever, and to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. So when you break that apart, The first thing is that it's going to show to the remnant of the house of Israel, and it speaks to them first and foremost. And the reason why is because the Book of Mormon is a item of prophecy. If you go to the previous podcast, you'll see some of those verses, but 
you'll have in Isaiah this reference of a marvelous work and a wonder, this idea of something that will hiss forth to all nations, that will be a standard to all nations. Um, in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 11, it refers to an enzyme to the world, and that enzyme is a standard. And in 2 Nephi 29, it talks about how these words will hiss forth as a standard. So these verses that you read in Isaiah, you can start to assign some meaning of those verses to have a direct witness of the Book of Mormon. This is the instrument that's going to gather Israel. So it is going to show to the house of Israel the great things that God has done for their fathers. This has always been a strong Old Testament idea. They were very cognizant of the blessings done to their fathers. Each Sabbath day, they're remembering the great blessings that God has done for them. The blessings of redemption that have come through Moses, for example. Something that uh, I think that we could benefit from in our own days as we approach our Sabbath. Do you take time to recall and be grateful for the blessings that God has done? The blessings that are very proximal to you in that what has he done for you this week? And are you taking time noting those blessings, but also extending all the way back, all the way back to Moses? It becomes a fun game, I think, sometimes when you're trying to not just count your blessings, but chart your blessings and see how did you get to where you are today? If you take nothing for granted, if you take, if you just eradicate all of your entitlements and assume the very, very worst should have happened, anything in your life that is not the very, very worst has come to you because of some blessing. And, and many of these, I'd say, have a more spiritual origin, not the fact that you have your TV, but the only reason you have a TV is because you live in a society that has had a free market and how do you get a free market what ideas are anchored in allowing free markets to arise because if you take that for granted and it becomes a fun game of trying to identify where your blessings have come from and you'll really start to find that god has done some incredible things for our forefathers and their blessings that they have received and the sacrifices that they have made that we have been the benefactors of those things the verse then states that they may know the covenants of the Lord. The covenants of the Lord is one of the deepest ideas in all of Scripture, not just the Book of Mormon, but the Bible as well. It would probably adequately take two to three hours to cover what those covenants are. I'll give a very brief overview. The covenants entail promises that God made to our fathers. These promises begin with Adam, and as you read through the Scriptures, the Scriptures will give close details into these covenants and how they move through different time periods. So God made specific promises with Adam. These promises eventually are renewed and further elaborated through Enoch. Um, I can't remember if Methuselah is highlighted in there. Obviously Noah gets highlighted quite a bit with the sign of the rainbow and the meaning there and the covenants that are expressed through that. And those covenants are essentially the same promises that were made to Adam as well as to Enoch. They're renewed with Noah. Noah passes them on to Shem. I believe that Shem sometimes, uh, some commentaries will say that he may in fact be Melchizedek. If you look in the topical guide or Bible dictionary under Shem, it'll actually just say, see Melchizedek. I don't know if that's completely doctrinally accurate or not, but it's at least interesting. It's at least as good of a guess as you can get for who Melchizedek is. So you may have 
at least we can say the covenants are passed on through Shem, perhaps Melchizedek, and then you have Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek and Abraham receiving his blessings and covenants, and those covenants get passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob or Israel. And really, when you're looking at the Old Testament itself, the Old Testament is quite focused on getting you to that point, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where it makes claim of those covenants. And these covenants are going to be further elaborated and described in the Book of Mormon in more detail and in a very simple, detailed way than any other writing of Scripture that you'll get. And that's one of the intents of the Book of Mormon, is to remember is for the house of Israel to remember it, the covenants that have been made. And one of the specific covenants that have been made is that they are not cast off forever. They're not just dispersed throughout the world, never to be redeemed. And this has redemption in of a sense of Jesus Christ and being cleansed from your sin, but also this redemption that occurs in a very social way where God is not just redeeming the individual and cleansing them from their sins, but he's redeeming an entire nation. He's setting up a, a society, a culture that will worship him. And that was one of the, the great moments of the covenants that God would actually have a people. That's the most specific scriptural word. And the idea of the gathering of Israel is God establishing a people that will have him to be their God. And then, of course, the Book of Mormon is that testimony of Jesus Christ, the eternal God manifesting himself unto all nations. And that's a principle that sometimes we forget, not in the sense that, you know, God has visited the Americas, God has visited Jerusalem, God has spoken to children. The idea there is God manifests himself unto all nations. It becomes a more peculiar question of in what ways has God manifested himself. But, you know, we do believe that some of the verses that we read in scripture in the scriptures are that all religion is instituted of God and that God gives things line upon line, precept upon precept. I used to have a quote from Elder Uchtdorf that said that many of these great religious leaders were inspired by God's spirit. And that included people such as Muhammad and the Buddha. And, and so there is manifestations of God within all people. And that's a principle that's worth remembering that every person on this planet, every culture does have some portion of the truth. And our goal is not to destroy their ideas of good and to destroy their values and the truths that are meaningful to them. But it is to add upon that, to expand it, to extend more and greater things on top of the great things that they already have. And I think it becomes a good challenge for many of us to focus more on the good in others and focus more on the truth that people have to take the time first to listen to those things. And once you have that foundation of what their, their core beliefs are, you're going to have a much easier time communicating with them as opposed to just shoving your ideas as well as I, not always your ideas. It's your, your specific language that you use, your specific semantics and, and try and force those on them. If you'll actually take the time to listen first and extract the, the main ideas, you'll have a very good common ground that it's a lot easier to build upon. So some missionary advice for you. Now the introduction, it begins with again, mostly a historical review, a historical review of some of the events occurring in the Book of Mormon leading to the Book of Mormon. 
Um, my focus is generally not on the history unless it's going to further elaborate a principle. So in my previous podcast, I focused quite a bit on this verse. Concerning the record, the prophet Joseph Smith said, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on the earth and the keystone of our religion, and that a man would get nearer to God by abiding its precepts than by any other book. One of the thoughts that I had that I didn't share in the previous podcast was regarding the Book of Mormon, truthfully, not a, a single piece of the history could be true, that all of the history could be complete fiction, and I would still maintain that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book of any on the earth. That's something that I can say without much hesitation. And that's not me actually making the statement that I don't believe in any of the historical the historical components of the Book of Mormon. In fact, there's a tremendous amount of very interesting, insightful, and meaningful things that have come from looking at the history. But it's more my way of emphasizing that this book is a spiritual book. It's designed to speak at, to us at a spiritual level. This book is not primarily a historical document. It is primarily a spiritual document, and that is the emphasis. And so when we make the claim that this book is the most correct of any book, it is a spiritual statement. And just throw all the history aside, and you can still say that this book is the most true book on the face of the earth because of the content, because of the, the ideas and the truth that it's actually expressing and its ability to do that being greater than any other book that you'll come into contact with. That is the emphasis. That's the core value and core function of the Book of Mormon. It states that the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion. Ezra Taft Benson in the November Enzyme 1986 made this statement. The Book of Mormon is the keystone of testimony. Just as the arch crumbles if the keystone is removed, so does all the church stand or fall with the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. The enemies of the church understand this clearly. This is why they go to such great lengths to try to disprove the Book of Mormon. For if it can be discredited, the Prophet Joseph Smith goes with it. So does our claim to priesthood keys and revelation and the restored church, but in like manner, if the Book of Mormon be true, and millions have now testified that they have the witness of the Spirit, that it is indeed true, then one must accept the claims of the restoration and all that accompanies it. It's a wonderful quote from Ezra Taft Benson, and that goes in line with a quote that I shared in the previous podcast from C.S. Lewis, where he brings up this very crucial binary regarding how you would have your opinion centered on Jesus Christ after reading the Bible. This statement from Ezra Taft Benson is what makes that same principle have some application with the Book of Mormon, this do-or-die statement. And that brings the segue into the final two paragraphs in the introduction, where it reads, We invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. The thing that gets overlooked quite a bit in the Moroni 3-5 through statements is this idea of remember the blessings that God has done from the fathers from the beginning of from Adam down to the time that you have received the Book of Mormon. And so there is this step in between 
um, receiving the Book of Mormon and actually asking, and that is this idea of pondering in your heart the message. And so I think that's a good principle to note. Why don't we always receive answers to our questions? It's the idea that you're just asking way too quickly. Take the time to ponder. And when I say take the time to ponder, I mean that literally. Maybe you should separate 10 to 15 minutes, sit in a room, and just think. It's something that's become quite popular in the psychological fields, mainly clinical psychology, the idea of mindfulness, which is basically just sitting in meditation and breathing. And you can incorporate that into prayerful worship quite easily. Sit in a room, perhaps in your closet, as it were, expressed in Matthew or Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, a place where you can be alone, where you're not worried about other people. Get on your knees and don't even speak. Just stay on your knees and ponder. Let your mind think. Maybe you can try and direct your mind a little bit in areas of gratitude, but you don't need to make this such a formal declaration of your ideas. Maybe it's just a sitting down on your knees and not declaring things, but receiving things. And to do that for five to 10 minutes, um, you could go longer than that, but five to 10 minutes would be a good start for many people. And just ponder, ponder messages of God, ponder the ideas of God, the words of the scriptures in your heart while on your knees in prayer. I think that's something that we've omitted greatly in the common cultural ideas of prayer. The last paragraph continues, those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and the Church of Jesus Christ is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth, preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. The Book of Mormon is deeply connected with the witness of the prophet Joseph Smith, which is deeply connected with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They all come together. And so the Book of Mormon is our witness. And one of the reasons why it's such a significant witness is the book exists. The fact that this book is there, it exists in a tangible way, it calls for some sort of description and explanation of its, of its existence. And that's something that many of the critics come up with these very poorly thought through ideas behind the, the arrival and the existence of the Book of Mormon. An honest scientific review of the Book of Mormon would have to at least come to the conclusion that Joseph Smith is one of the most brilliant men that have ever existed on the face of the earth, or maybe start to entertain the idea that he had some prophetic guidance to explain his genius, because there's really not a good explanation for the, the genius level of scriptural knowledge that is found in the Book of Mormon. That's something that uh, a scholar, an honest scholar, would really have to conclude. Myself having, you know, invested a tremendous amount into the scriptures, there's no way I could produce something similar to the Book of Mormon. It's, I'm just completely dumbfounded by the level of scriptural knowledge and the depth of knowledge that exists within there. And I've never been able to see that level of knowledge exist within any human being that I've ever come into contact with. There's no scholar on the face of the earth that I've heard their their commentary and their knowledge and ability to explain the scriptures that has even come close to what you find here in the Book of Mormon. I really do encourage you to read the testimonies of the three witnesses. There is a tremendous power and spirit that comes from them. And it's very interesting that the three witnesses 
Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris all left the church and yet never denied their witness of the Book of Mormon. And we often come off quite as harsh judges of the Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. Not that we want to promote people leaving the church, but again, when you look at the amount of good that these individuals still maintained in their life and, and how the Book of Mormon remained a foundation for them in their life, that still is a great admirable thing and something worth noting that the power of the Book of Mormon, though these individuals still had left the church, they still maintained a testimony of the Book of Mormon and the truths that were there and were greatly blessed and benefited by those truths. And the fact that they still held to that witness, I think, is quite um, a, mar a marvelous thing, especially the fact, you know, there is something about this, that these individuals had left the church, but they never denied their witness of the Book of Mormon and what occurred there. The particular words that really struck me is in the testimony of the three witness is this phrase, his voice hath declared it unto us. Wherefore, we know of a surety that the work is true. And we also testify that we have seen the engravings which are upon the plates. An angel of God came down from heaven and he brought and laid before our eyes. I read that and have a feeling of jealousy that I have not had such an incredible experience. However, um, I really do feel a power in those words and that witness that has come from these men. In the Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 5, verse 12, regarding these witnesses, it reads this verse. It's a good cross-reference to have here. Yea, they shall know of a surety that these things are true, for from heaven I will declare it from, I will declare it unto them. And that's Doctrine and Covenants 5.12. So truthfully read the testimony of the, the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. One of the ways that you can approach that content in a lesson is simply by asking, um, what, what words or what phrases or what from that testimony struck you or did anyone feel, feel the witness of the spirit from any of the testimonies, the testimony of the three witnesses, the testimony of the eight witnesses and the testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith. And mine is just a simple testimony that as I've read these witnesses again and again and again, I've read them many times. Each time I truly do feel a, a unique spirit accompanying these testimonies. Now, some of the content in the testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith, some things I wanted to highlight. Um, it introduces the idea of the Urim and Thummim, which was a great segue to a quote that I have. This comes from The Power of the Book of Mormon in My Life. That's Enzyme, October 1984. I believe it's Richard G. Scott. He states, If you have not yet drunk deeply from this fountain of pure truth, with all of my soul I encourage you to do so now. Don't let the consistent study of the Book of Mormon be one of the things that you intend to do but never quite accomplish. I bear witness that it can become a personal Urim and Thummim in your life. Now, if I am right, the, the word Urim and Thummim, they are Hebrew words. Urim would have relation to the word light. There is a character in the, in the Bible named Uriah. And it is God is my light, Yuri. Yuri is that same root that's found in Urim and Thummim. So Yuri would be light. And Thummim or Tumim, I probably can't say anything in Hebrew correctly, is the idea of perfection. So the Book of Mormon, your study of the Book of Mormon can be a light and perfection in your life. The Urim and Thummim was used to translate. 
And what is it that we need to translate in our life? Well, we have a tremendous amount of content in our life. We have all sorts of experiences and life is quite confusing. I mean, it's actually quite overwhelming when you think of all the data that is being processed in your life. We truthfully do need a Urim and Thummim. We need something to help translate the meaning of all of our experiences in life. Without the scriptures, without the witnesses that come from the Bible and the Book of Mormon and the standard works of scripture, we would be ultimately lost. We wouldn't be able to make sense of all of the happenings that are occurring in our lives and the, the, all the happenings around the world. The Book of Mormon actually is for you this idea. I really like the, the idea that the Book of Mormon is like a Urim and Thummim for you because it's as you merge your own experiences with the truths and witnesses of the past, we're able to have that accurate translation of the meaning of our own world, the world of our individual experiences. Something that I wanted to mention, but I omitted in the previous podcast, was the idea that Joseph Smith wanted to get the plates. You can imagine a young man like, oh, this is all so interesting. Yeah, give me those plates. But the angel forbade him saying, that I must have no other object in view in getting the plates but to glorify God and must not be influenced by any other motive than that of building his kingdom. Otherwise, I could not get them. So that takes place in a more literal, tangible way. I personally like to look at that as a general principle regarding the Book of Mormon. It states in Moroni chapter 10, 3 through 5, that if it be wisdom in God that you should receive these things, if it be wisdom in God that you receive the Book of Mormon, there's still is this idea of, is it God's wisdom that you should obtain the Book of Mormon? It puts me in the same image here of Joseph Smith and the angel, and it, it, it is this proposal to you. Do you want the testimony and witness of the Book of Mormon? Not the, not the literal gold plates. The gold is representation of its value. Do you want the gold that exists within the Book of Mormon? Do you want the utmost un uncalculable value that exists in the Book of Mormon? Because if you truly want that, perhaps you need to not have any other motive other than building God's kingdom. Otherwise, you will not be able to get the Book of Mormon. You won't get the testimony. You won't get the witness. Missionaries go out. They'll give the Book of Mormon to people and people may not be ready for it. They may not have that preparation. They may not have their motive straight. You need a pure heart in order to receive the witness of the Book of Mormon. Matthew chapter 5, it states that blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. If you truly want to see God in these pages, your heart needs to be pure. You need to have no other motive in mind. You need to not be influenced by any other motivation than that of building the kingdom. That pure intent, this this is a way of describing the pure intent that's involved in the Moroni chapter 10, 3 through 5. What are your motivations? And that's why in that podcast I ask, what is your motivation as you approach the study of the Book of Mormon? Because if your motivation is more academic, then you're probably going to get an academic result out of your study. But if your, if your motive is going to be more of a spiritual sense, then the Book of Mormon will have a spiritual influence on your life. And I hope that that truthfully is your motivation as you approach the Book of Mormon, even if you've read it before. Because the words themselves, if it's an academic thing, then that rereading of the Book of Mormon may not be as insightful. 
But if you approach it with the idea of I'm doing this to build God's kingdom, I'm building, I'm reading these words to build my own spirituality, then you will obtain that blessing. There's an interesting verse in Doctrine and Covenants that talks about people journeying to Zion and it states that only the pure in heart could be led to Zion. It's this, it's, it's a very cool narrative that you have. Um, I always remember King Arthur and Galahad that in order to obtain the Holy Grail, why couldn't King Arthur get the Holy Grail? Because his heart wasn't pure, but Galahad could get it. And the essence of it all is if you want the Holy Grail, if you want the golden plates, if you want that thing which is of incalculable valuable value, then your heart needs to be pure. So the best preparation that you can have as you as you enter into the Book of Mormon is to do your best to, ha- to cultivate a pure motive. Do your best to have a pure heart. And to me, one of the best definitions of a pure heart is wanting to come to God. Anyone who has that most childlike desire, who will become as a little child and have that pure motivation to make things better, to make yourself better, to, to want things to be good in yourself and in the world, that very childlike desire to, to tap into that. And then as that desire is allowed to flourish, the Book of Mormon will expand that. It will grow that, increase that to the point where you're led closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the great miracle of the Book of Mormon, is that it does bring people to Jesus Christ. And I testify that it will do the same for you as you approach your study of the Book of Mormon with pure intent, with a pure heart to come to Christ and to build his kingdom. And I share this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Your support for this podcast is greatly appreciated. Thank you. You can support this podcast by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature or His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you and God bless.